This is Talking Beats. I'm Daniel Lelchuk, and I welcome you. Go ahead and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join us at Talking Beats Podcast on social media to keep the conversation going. On today's program, counterterrorism expert Malcolm Nance, the highly decorated former senior chief petty officer and specialist in cryptology, spent 20 years in the U.S. Navy. In addition to his work combating terrorism in the Middle East, he's also an expert on the history of the Soviet Union and its spy agency, the KGB, as well as the FSB, the agency that succeeded it. The founder of the Terror Asymmetrics Project, he's the author of Defeating ISIS, An End to Al-Qaeda, and The Plot to Hack America, among other books. Before we started our conversation, I had no idea of all the major news that would be coming out, and I thought I'd be able to ask Malcolm Nance, how the hell you train people to combat terrorism? <laughs> well, you know, that's that's the least most interesting thing that's happening these days, and certainly within our nation and in, in, in our democracy. Uh, so it, it's actually the one thing that I'm, I'm most noted for, but that I'm doing the least of. I, I, there are very few actual terrorist incidents occurring, and most things are related to intelligence and our democracy. Why do you think that is? I mean, what effect do you think the virus has had on terrorism? I mean, are people taking that into account when they're planning attacks? You know, that's a possibility. And, and one of the things that I, that I have had the opportunity to do during the pandemic is to actually knock down some of the more crazy theories that are out there that, you know, the Wuhan virus, uh, the, you know, COVID-19 was actually developed in Wuhan. It was a biological weapon or the Americans developed it and sent it to China. You know, um, when I was in the military, I took a course that was run by the U.S. Army Medical uh, Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, or USAMRID. And they are essentially the CDC for the military. And they're, they're co-organizations. They, they, they handle everything related to biological weapons and all these things. And, you know, it's very hard to use biology as a weapon that would be novel, right? Unless it was some new genetic modification. And it would be intensely easy to trace it, right? Um, this is mother, what's happening to us now is just mother nature doing her thing. Uh, and But, you know, some people aren't convinced that uh, the thing that they see before their very eyes is exactly that. If you were to put yourself, and I'm sure you've done this a lot before, if you were to put yourself in the mind of a fighter for ISIS, a fighter for Al-Qaeda, what do you think happens when, when they sit down to try to plot something and they say, wait a minute, there's a pandemic happening? Is, 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 that, is that a re- ridiculous notion? I think it is for them because, you know, the, the, the purpose of any group that would be using political violence, whether it's ISIS, Al-Qaeda, neo-Nazis, the, the purpose of that is to actually create a spectacle. And that spectacle is designed to get eyes onto you. And, you know, we saw this with um, the accident that occurred in Beirut a couple of weeks ago, which was 27,000 tons of ammonium nitrate, which is a component of some of the biggest bombs that were ever made out there. Ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, for example, that was used at the Oklahoma City bombing. 
you know, many bombings in Iraq and Afghanistan were all ammonium nitrate, which is fertilizer. That story became a human interest story after a day when it became clear that it was an accident. So if you're a terrorist and you're actually trying to think of doing something as a as Comedy Central once put it in the mouths of, of, of Al Qaeda, trying to do something special. It's pretty hard these days when special is your wife, your child, uh, other members of this ideological belief surviving. But that doesn't mean that people aren't out there plotting. And in fact, we saw very early on in the COVID outbreak, um, there were indicators and, and people in chat rooms of, of neo-Nazi groups in the United States asking people to get coronavirus and to go spit on on Jewish people and on black people. So that's an act of terrorism. I mean, you know, they are trying to, you know, perpetrate an ideological goal uh, through the use of a natural disaster. Let me ask you just a practical question about what you just said, because I, I'd never heard that. It's it's kind of shocking. It is shocking. It's not kind of shocking to me, to a, to a non-professional. Maybe to you it's not. But how do you, this sounds silly, how do you know that? Where do you go on the, to track this? Where on the Internet do people like you go? I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like a very bewildering space. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm not asking for a URL, but you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, the easiest URL to go to is bbc.co.uk. A lot of people, and it's principally because of the political dynamic that's happening in the United States, have been taught to not even trust what they see before their very eyes, what they hear in the news media. And that, of course, is going to really, and it already has had a damaging effect on political discourse. It's had a damaging effect on basic common sense. So the news media is still a functioning organ. And, you know, NBC News, you know, I, full disclosure, I work for MSNBC as a political, as a, sorry, counterterrorism contributor. They don't make things up. Right. If, if a man is arrested or we or you have uh, scholars and academics who are scrolling through the Internet all the time and they find someone who's saying these things or you have a law enforcement agency that's tracking it, it will make its way into the, the legitimate news sphere. And those stories are generally vetted. They're generally bounced off against law enforcement. So you can believe the most news organizations. It's the ones that turn into political propagandists, right? Like, you know, OANN, right? Which is nothing to do with news. It's literally a mouthpiece for a political party and half the people who work there, you know, are very known fabricators. So common sense of, you know, CBS, your ABC, your CNN, your MSNBC, are going to be the organizations which will report general news relative, you know, relatively straight. And so are most print news organizations. The problem here is this, this last four years or five years where a, an ideological group within the United States that now runs the government wants you to not believe anything but what they say. And so people get confused about what's a good source. The good sources are the sources that have always been there. Okay, so let's get to 
what happened very recently wasn't on my plan of things to discuss with you, as I said, but Alexei Navalny, Poison, the anti-corruption activist, Russian politician. Talk about this specific case, Malcolm Nance, and also talk about if you can put it in context with a general abridged history of Russia poisoning opposition figures. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, and, and I'll full, another bit of full disclosure, because I, I, I often get grief from this by Russia, Russia files and Russia experts. They all say, well, you're not a Russian expert. No, I am not a Russian expert. I am an intelligence expert. Where I started in this world in the intelligence community was in the Cold War. And the Russians, the former Russian intelligence agency, the KGB, which is now known as the FSB, a uh, little little joke that I always make is that uh, when the Soviet Union fell and the Russian Federation stood up, a guy at KGB headquarters maintenance division came up to the uh, front desk and took down the letters K and G and put up the letters F and S. And that's it. That was the change between Russian <laughs> intelligence agencies. Actually, the FSB now has a bigger budget, much bigger than the KGB would ever have imagined. So that being said, when the Soviet Union fell in 1989 and Russia became this sort of fledgling, freewheeling democracy with a small d nation that transformed itself by the year 2000 into a professional kleptocracy where the instruments of the state, all of the assets of the Soviet Union over 10 years were liquidated and privatized. And I mean from fire hydrants to light bulbs to entire factories and warships could be sold and were sold by uh, the people who moved the fastest and were the most ruthless. And one of those people was the deputy mayor of, uh, of, of um, St. Petersburg, Russia, named Vladimir Putin. And he was an ex-KGB officer. He knew how to use his KGB friends. He knew how to intimidate the Russian mafia, which is an act, uh, incredible act because they are professional lifelong criminals. And he made billions and made billions for others. And so when he got corrupt and alcoholic Russian President Boris Yeltsin off the hook by essentially blackmailing the attorney general of the, of the Russian Federation, he became the president of Russia. And from that point onward, Vladimir Putin is set to make Russia great again. And the way that they do that is to achieve the same goals of the Soviet Union. And those goals were to make Russia anything. You must uh, discredit and dismantle Western liberal democracies. And he means all of them. And, and Russia figured out very quickly that the way to get at democracies is to buy politicians, uh, bring them to your side, have them be your advocates, and then pump their political parties with a lot of money, and then let them vote to get rid of democracy. And so Vladimir Putin has been doing that for some time. But Alexei Navalny is a true democracy activist in Russia who wants free and fair elections. He's run to against Vladimir Putin as um, for, to be the Russian president. And Vladimir Putin has, is he loves, the KGB. I mean, I, I went to his office that he worked out of in, in Dresden, which was a uh, philosophical society. When you're there and you can feel how as a baby spy, his job was to manipulate people to become traitors. 
Putin loved that job. He loved it. But what the other component, when he became the first director of the FSB and then the president of Russia, he viewed the intelligence apparatus, which goes back to 1917, as as the heroes of the Russian Federation. So he uses many traditional methods of eliminating his opposition. And as I wrote in my, my second book about Trump and Russia, it's called The Plot to Destroy Democracy. And it lays out why Putin wants to get rid of democracy. Because, you know, Russia is a sort of a third-rate country, and he's essentially creating an axis of autocrats. And Donald Trump is one of those autocrats. But he kills his, his opponent. There's the joke about, um, you know, many people in Russia fall out of, you know, apartment buildings, you know, through plate glass windows. Uh, political assassination by, by making it look like a suicide by people or, or murdering them is a common FSB tactic. Heart attacks through exotic drugs that are never investigated to people who are very closely associated with negative incidents of Vladimir Putin are a dime a dozen. Um, and but most interestingly, because Alexei Navalny was flying back from Siberia to Moscow, he had a key in his, at an airport um, cafe and then during the flight succumbed to some illness and is now in a coma uh, in, a, in a Moscow hospital. Poisoning tea is a very, very personal Vladimir Putin tactic. And usually it's done with some exotic poison like polonium, which is a radioactive byproduct from nuclear reactors that are making weapons-grade atomic bomb uranium and plutonium, right? So you can't just find this stuff on the street. So we shall see whether Vladimir Putin had Navalny, uh, uh, you know, if Navalny dies and he just wanted to get rid of him. Uh, but it is pretty clear from the tactic of how he was poisoned that either he or someone under his direction uh, most likely decided to end the last camp champion for democracy in Russia. Malcolm Nance, you bring up so many things that I want to ask about. So let me just ask two right now regarding what you just said. One, uh, well, actually, both may be very obvious, naive questions, but I'm going to ask anyway. Why the need for the elaborate poisonings for the mysterious heart attacks why can't everybody just fall out of their apartment window through three panes of of glass well you know we have this saying in counterterrorism, right uh that that um the the, the tactic is the message uh, for example there was an enterprising young uh, woman journalist in russia she was followed and executed in her apartment elevator right and so to make it look like, you know, it was banditry. But, you know, she was exposing all of these activities of the Kremlin. So the next person, uh, another campaigner for Russian democracy, was shot to death and executed in Red Square. Right. And the this is the most one of the most surveilled spots in the world. Right. With video cameras anywhere. But a truck was conveniently parked at the exact spot that he was executed at. And there was no video of the people who shot him or him being shot at that time. But the poison is the most interesting one. 
because it's a very old, traditional Russian method of killing your political enemies and usually done by the crown. And if anything, Putin is a student of history. His poisonings hark back to this medieval methodology that is in everyone's mind. It's just that they don't poison you with hemlock. You know, like I said, they poison you with byproducts of atomic bombs or like the Novichok poison that he used to try to um, attempt to kill an ex FSB KGB officer who had defected to the West. Uh, he used Novichok is a nerve agent that is made the most virulent nerve agent made by Russia and the former Soviet Union before it became Russia. And. By using that weapon of state, a weapon of mass destruction, you are sending a terrifying message to your enemies that I personally, Vladimir Putin, am authorizing the most incredible arsenal in history to be used on you, an individual. And I want the world and my enemies and my allies to know that I opened that, you know, I opened that Pandora's box. But when they carried out that attack uh, in 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 England using Novichok and it ended up killing British citizens, it was technically a weapons of mass destruction attack on a NATO ally. And they laughed about it. I mean, they brought the FSB officers back to Russia. They had them interviewed by Russian television. Uh, they were saying making jokes about why they were there in that city to come see some cathedral. Look, this is a horrific way of, of of putting into the minds of your enemy that any time Vladimir Putin's finger can touch you and kill you. So Alexei Navalny is in an airport in Siberia. He orders a tea. I mean, how elaborate is the staging of this? It's quite amazing that, that we, he would so innocently sit down at a cafe in the airport and drink a black tea and maybe be killed by this. He's got to live, live his life. I mean, you never know. It might have been, it might have been the, uh, you know, it might have been the, uh, the, the sugar cube. It might have been the, the, it might have been a glazing on the cup itself. The Novichok chemical weapons that were used were actually sprayed on the front door handles of Skripal, the, the ex FSB officer who was, uh, living in the West. Key though, uh, which is a traditional drink in Russia. It's almost it's 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 almost a cliche now that Putin himself wants you dead if you die from tea, and so uh, he's sending his message. And again, Navalny is pretty much the last of the major characters who could oppose Vladimir Putin and get some people power, power momentum behind him. So Putin has just made it clear, I, and you know it could be something as exotic as. There was, you know, open your, you know, plutonium or uranium that was irradiating him while he drank that tea and that the entire table was a weapon and that this guy could be dying of, you know, radioactivity poison. We don't know yet. But again, it's the finger of, of the ex-KGB officer letting you know your time is up. Talk about timing for a second. So we're in summer, late summer, I guess, 2020. U.S. presidential elections obviously loom large. But Putin has uh, secured a spot for himself for the foreseeable future, to put it mildly. 
uh, as recently as as a couple of months ago in the recent Russian elections. So, so what what do you think now this is about? I mean, the the timing must be obviously crucial here. I think that uh, you know there have been there have been a, a whole range of protests across Russia recently that Putin and his allies, his oligarchs and regional politicians, just could not stop. And, you know, like Donald Trump, the way he focuses his wrath on an individual, if you kill Alexei Navalny, right, a man with a high profile such as this, and you do it in such a way that everyone in, in Russia knows that that Vladimir Putin did it himself or, or had the FSB or their clandestine service, the SVR, do it themselves, you essentially kill future opposition. I mean, if you can do one man, it's a it's it's technically a ta- a version of state sponsored terrorism, where you know, like like Kim Jong Un, you know, taking his uncle and putting him up against the post and using an anti aircraft gun gun to decimate his body and broadcasting that on state TV. Right? No one wants to stand in front of the anti aircraft gun. Same thing here with Navalny. This will create a pause. Uh, until someone who's more fearless will be able to stand up to Vladimir Putin. So what does it say to the United States? I don't think that this is a, is a consideration for America at all, but certainly for Russia, uh, this is going to turn out. Now, Russia and their, their, their former client state, Belarus, which is having its own people power uprising right now, uh, with a, an election, uh, where Apparently, the results are, you know, the exit poll results didn't match the actual election results. And people there are now upset and are planning to do like Ukraine and overthrow the government. Again, Vladimir Putin uh, may even have been speaking that far out. Um, But, you know, you're talking about the mind of a career KGB officer. Malcolm Nance, let's take a quick pause and shift gears radically because as you know this program is talking beats and no one escapes without talking a little bit about their their favorite music everybody loves music even even Putin I'm sure so what what do you love Malcolm Nance what do you listen to when you need to either relax or when you need to sort of amp things up that really depends it really does now okay I'm going to tell you guys some secrets since you know we're we're, we're talking spies here I was raised in Philadelphia and I, I went to Catholic high school. And while I was there, I was in the orchestra, you know. Um, and uh, while I was there, I, I was exposed to some great, great music. In fact, Philadelphia used to have a classical music station that was just incredible. And I really came to love classical music. And also, being in the, in the orchestra, uh, Philadelphia used to sponsor a youth orchestra every summer. And we would be... You know, we would go out and we would play music. And one of the things that we would do is a great director would um, conduct this youth orchestra. And that summer, my great conductor that I actually got to play music under was Leonard Bernstein. Wow. Think about that. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. What instrument did you play? Uh, flute and piccolo, believe it or not. Wow. I went into the military. But, um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I used to love Seiji Ozawa, but no one, no, you know, because of the floppy hair. Uh, but no one <laughs> beats Leonard Bernstein. 
And one of the, 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 I can tell you right now, one of my favorite pieces of anything is West Side Story. I often tell people when I give speeches, I say, you know, if you look at it properly, we are living in West Side Story. And if you would like to have one piece of music from West Side Story that could describe where we are, it would be the song America in, in West Side Story, right? You have the two, you know, the, 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 the women and the men arguing about whether America is a great country or not, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and it's just, it's also one of the most incredible pieces of music ever written. I mean, it's, it, granted, it's musical, but it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it is just an amazing piece of music. And Leonard Bernstein, right? So, um, I love, I love that piece of music. So I have a really wide, varied interest in the kind of music that I listen to. And it really depends on what I'm doing. You know, I mean, I'm in my mid fifties. So believe it or not, I was into alternative and progressive music in the early eighties, really, you know, late seventies, early eighties, really early back when it was, you know, you had to listen to a university <laughs> radio station. To hear anything, right? Now it's, that's considered classic rock. You know, it, it, it's funny. Let, let me just say one thing about West Side Story, you know, because I, I, I went through a, uh, a West Side Story phase last summer. It was just on my phone all the time. And, I, you know, being a symphony and chamber music guy and stuff, you know, we don't get to play that. All that we play the suite from West Side Story, which you, you've probably done. It, it's a great, great piece, you know, 15 minutes sort of best of. But I, I was listening to the late recording that Bernstein made using a cast of opera singers. And it's unbelievable. Listen to this cast. It has Kiri Takanoa, it has Jose Carreras, Marilyn Horn. I mean, it's unreal. And, uh, and he's conducting. It's a studio recording with opera singers. It's unbelievable. And it, it puts a whole new light on it. And, uh, and also a song that, by the way, I think speaks to uh, where we are right now is there's a place for us. Well, I, I really feel like I'm trapped in Officer Krupke. So, <laughs> so uh, but, you know, I, I tell you, there's just so many allegories to that. And, and to, as long as we're giving nods to musicals, um, I wrote an entire book re, uh, listening to Hamilton, the soundtrack of the musical Hamilton. And it was just so uplifting that, my epilogues when I when I wrote these books and my last one, The Plot to Betray America, was really I you know, I'm from Philadelphia. I'm a Philadelphian. I'm I'm a real originalist when it comes to how American democracy was founded and how the American experiment should move forward. There was just something about Hamilton, you know, the Hamilton musical, which one educates young people, you know, and I'm so glad it's out on Disney Plus because no one could afford the tickets to that show. But the music is so absolutely incredible. And paralleling that to the this recording, you you have a West Side Story with all these greats. There's the Hamilton mixtape, which is the version of that where all these famous artists re-sing and re you know and and rewrite some of the songs from Hamilton, some of which are even better. <laughs> you know, immigrants. You know, <laughs> we get the job done. That version, you know, it sings in Cholo Spanish in, at parts. And I'm like, wow, oh, this is actually better than the original musical. So, <laughs> you know, so I, so it also shows that, of course, I have this cross currents of rap and all the rest. You know, I'm not Irie Melber when it comes to loving rap, 
He's he's pretty sharp. He's he has a line for everything. I tell you something. When he first got his show, I, I said, Harry, you're a you're an incredible lawyer. Why don't you call this show the gavel with Harry Melford? <laughs> and he goes, How can you know I actually love rap? And I was floored. I was like, You do? He goes, No, it's gonna be called the beat. And I was like, All right, and now this guy, you know, he he should be running a museum or something. So, <laughs> well, it, it it really could be called the rap with Ari Melber. I mean, <laughs> it could. <laughs> that would be a good one. Beat the rap. <laughs> That's what it should be. <laughs> so, but but back to your original question. I I love all sorts of diverse music, and I I know a lot of music. You know, I'm a big world music guy because you know you can't be in the U.S. intelligence community and not understand and learn and assimilate into foreign cultures and and learn to like their music also. Um, and I can tell you the earliest song that I ever learned that I can, I still know today, uh, came from a TV show that I think may have had the biggest influence on my entire life, uh, was a, a PBS show called Big Blue Marble. It's a show about kids all over the world. And in every show they go around and they meet other kids, but you know, the, the theme from Big Blue Marble is, you know, is is literally, you know, my my operating principle, you know, that the kids are kids and they all live the same, you know, pretty much the same all over the world. And the same can be said with people. Malcolm Nance, let me take you back to a, a bit of a, a darker place than uh, the music of Leonard Bernstein, which is, um, of course, as uplifting as it gets and as moving as it gets. Malcolm Nance, where are you right now? Politically, I know you're you're a, a former Republican. I maybe still maybe an independent now, I, as far as I can keep track. But how weird does it feel to you to be where you are after having spent decades military, high levels, Republican uh, government? You know, where the hell are you? Well, first off, I was a Republican for a very short while because this is true. What I am about to say: when I went to boot camp. And uh, we were registering to vote. It's one of those last pieces of paperwork they do. And I was like, the guy goes, oh, you got to put down what party you are. And I was like, oh, I don't know what party I am. And this was literally what was said. And Ronald Reagan had just been elected president. He said, you, you're in the military. We're all Republicans. And so he marked Republican for me on there. And so I was just like, all right, whatever. I'm all about Reagan's. You know, there's a bear in the woods. But I didn't vote. Fortunately for me, I didn't vote because as I became more savvy, I was doing many more operations overseas. I could actually see what was going on in the world, how the geopolitical decisions from the White House were actually influencing not just the targets that I was dealing with, but my missions themselves. For better or worse, I started realizing that, you know, it's very important for you to know who you're voting for. And then around Contra happened, which was, you know, literally the White House and the National Security Advisors breaking the law because they didn't like it. And, you know, and hiding behind the president, who they said had Alzheimer's. So that and then the run up to the Bill Clinton impeachment, which was pretty funny because, you know, I was in the Navy. And, you know, to hear somebody get impeached for having, an, you know, a, a, a consensual affair. And I suddenly realized, hey, I'm not like these people. I am not a mean-spirited person 
who <laughs> yeah, many, I'm sorry, but many Republicans are. So from that point onward, I think about 1996, I, I became a Democrat and I started voting Democrat because I could see the juxtaposition between the two sides. And people say, well, you know, you're a counterterrorism guy, and then you jumped into this whole Trump-Russia thing. Um, my entire claim to fame with being an opponent of Donald Trump is because I was the first person in U.S. news media understanding how information warfare worked, how the, the so you know the Russians, the former Soviet Union transitioning to the Russian Federation, and how their intelligence agencies worked, having been exposed to them in the Cold War. You know, even though I worked in the Middle East, KGB was everywhere. I knew a foreign intelligence operation when I saw one, and when. The DNC was hacked and the information was released to WikiLeaks. I was the first person in U.S. media to go on national television and say the United States is under attack by a foreign power that is hacked information from U.S. citizens and is using it to elect a person that they want in office. And believe me, I was treated like a pariah for a few months, even after Barack Obama came out on national television. And essentially said the same thing. You know, many people in the news media just would not believe this. They were just in love with the fact that Hillary Clinton's emails were being exposed, which is funny because none of her emails. It was other people's emails and her emails essentially stayed secure. That is how I got to the political tack that I'm at, because I could see that Donald Trump was clearly Vladimir Putin's candidate of choice. When asked in Helsinki, Putin said that out loud. He also said that, yes, he directed his government to work to elect Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump has spent every minute of his presidency, even this very second, betraying this nation in so many patently obvious ways that, you know, it's almost that his strategy is that I want you to see how bad I am uh, and there's nothing you can do about it, sort of like. Putin's poisonings, right? Malcolm Nance, I had on yesterday Lawrence Tribe, and I asked him a question that I'm going to ask you, and I wasn't planning to, but you sort of led us right there. And and the question is, that may sound a little strange, because when I first thought of it, I said, well, that's a little weird. But you tell me, Malcolm Nance, if Trump had lost in 2016, what do you think he would have gotten from Russia? Anything besides Moscow Trump Hotel, because, you know, he spent a long time sort of burnishing the reputation of Putin to uh, the American public. Would there have been some sort of, I call it a reward for effort? Yeah, right, a participation medal. You, know, you have to understand something. Uh, and again, this, this, the two books that I've written recently, The Plot to Destroy Democracy, which is Putin's strategy. It's mainly about how he co-opted not just the United States, virtually every conservative sort of semi-fascist political organization in Europe is bought, so, you know, and paid for by the Russian Federation, United Russia Party. Interesting, good example is the, the you know, the prime minister of Austria, who was elected a few weeks after Donald Trump was. The first act that they did was to sign a, a, an agreement, a political agreement with United Russia Party to do trade and, and, and all of these these things with Putin's party. But the Austrian party that was was elected was established in 1952 by two former SS officers. They were, you know, sort of fascist light. 
And the Russians have spent quite a bit of time realizing since the fall of the Soviet Union that they weren't these flaming communist liberals, that they are, in fact, a very religiously and socially conservative country, very conservative. And Donald Trump wasn't the first person that they reached out to. They first reached out to the evangelicals in 2010. And by 2016, they had firmly had Franklin Graham coming over every year and hobnobbing with Putin in these conferences that they called the preservation or the salvation of Christianity conferences. And many evangelicals in the United States views Russia as the last bastion of white Orthodox Christendom because they were aligned against Islam. And so they also put agents, actual Russian agents, to co-opt the National Rifle Association. Uh, Maria Butina, who was caught, uh, was, was put up for a trial and then traded back to Russia, uh, you know, sent back to Russia quite possibly in a very quiet prisoner exchange. She was an agent of influence. Her job was to get at Donald Trump, his family, and the National Rifle Association essentially into a co-opted branch of the Russian government by showing that they're all allies and friends. The same thing with the alt-right. Virtually every major leader of the alt-right, David Duke, has an apartment in Moscow, and he used to loan it to Richard Spencer, the head of the neo-Nazis, whose wife was the uh, Ukrainian, pro-Moscow Ukrainian translator for Alexander Dugin, Steve Bannon's ideological uh, um, philosopher and Putin's philosopher of the of the neo-Eurasianism strategy to change the poles of the world to where Moscow is the center of the world. So with that, Russia also tried this tactic that the Germans and Europeans called Schroederization. And that's where the former uh, German Chancellor, Helmut Schroeder, or Gerhard Schroeder, Gerhard Schroeder, was essentially bought by the Russians. And he goes around Europe and evangelizes for Vladimir Putin. And Schroederization means a former politician or a high-level politician who now acts as spokesman for Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation in exchange for oligarch money and access. And that's where the United States is now. That's where we have Americans who have been completely and thoroughly Schroederized. Uh, Republican senators, Republican Rand Paul runs as errand boy for Donald Trump to take private letters to Vladimir Putin. It, it happens all the time. And the Russians are smart because they have a KGB officer as their leader. They went after every aspect of American society, including stoking racism, racial tensions. Because Russia listens to its scholars. And when they want to use knowledge for evil, they are James Bond-level evil villains. Malcolm Nance, you bring up so many things, and I know we don't have unlimited time, but but tell us uh, what we should be looking out for as fall progresses, as the election gets closer, as the virus melds with the flu, which is going to come back, cold weather is going to come back, a lot's going to happen, and you are observing democracy here and around the world. What keeps you up at night? Well, to be quite honest, Donald Trump has done a good job of keeping me up at night, literally. <laughs> I mean, you know, with programming, <laughs> with TV segments going into the 1 and 2 a.m. orders. And, you know, none of them are terrorism anymore, which is good. But you have to understand something that we do have 
a pandemic that is savaging the country. But you have a leader who thinks he saved everyone by by allow you know by putting a ban on China, in which wasn't a ban. He actually allowed forty thousand Americans and Chinese into the country from Wuhan and other parts of China after the ban. And also, you know, he didn't want a ban on Europe. And uh, as Governor Cuomo says, all of the cases that came to New York City that created the great pandemic of New York flew in from Europe after having gone to China. So we have a, a president that does not believe in American democracy. He does not believe in efficiency of government. He doesn't believe in government at all. So what keeps me awake as a native Philadelphian is that that saying that George Washington made that sits in Washington Square, that freedom is a light for which many men have died in darkness. We have sacrificed a lot in this country. And I'm terrified that this November, Russia's strategy of Schroederization and where you can co-opt the society so much that they will vote their own democracy out of existence. Because that's how you destroy democracy. You use democracy to vote that you don't want democracy anymore. We are on the cusp of that. We are quite literally on the cusp of a dictatorship. And uh, Donald Trump has made it clear that, you know, I mean, he doesn't believe that laws apply to him. He has been told by people that he is an absolute ruler. The last person that that was said to, you know, was George III. We had a revolution over this very subject. And I think that if Donald Trump wins, he will do exactly what you see is going on in Belarus and these other countries. He will normalize relations with Russia, where he takes all of his advice, and he will start his witch hunt against people. I was pulled off air last year for three weeks because Bill Barr and the Trump campaign sent to news media that critics should be pulled off air because the Mueller report didn't say Trump conspired with Russia. Well, that that was a lie. It did, it did say that, essentially. It just didn't use the word collude because it wasn't a legal term. So I think it will be horrific for this nation and for the world literally everything done since World War II to change the world into a, a, a place where trade and culture and music and, and ideas can be exchanged through democratic norms will go away because the United States will have voted itself an autocracy. And we will just be another bauble that Putin has collected in his axis of autocracy. You paint such a, a rosy picture. I, I, I don't know what to... I don't even know. I mean, God, wouldn't you rather be talking about Beethoven and Mozart right now? I would. I would. But, you know, these are hard times. And, you know, I, in my last two books, every time I wrote an epilogue, and my epilogues are always me giving a heartfelt begging as this native Philadelphian, and, you know, spy who has, who has given everything that I could to my nation save my life, which I, I have offered many times, believe me. I've had opponents that have tried, but I always quote at the beginning of my last chapter something from Hamilton. And this this in my previous book, The Plot to Destroy Democracy, 
I literally put the words of George Washington from the musical Hamilton, of course. And, and when, Ham, when, when George Washington is, is, is being introduced into the musical, for those of you who haven't heard it, everybody is, is talking about how wonderful Washington, here he comes. And Washington's first words are essentially, we're, we're essentially going to fall. You know, it's 32,000 British troops in New York Harbor, you know, and as he says, you're waxing on about my eloquence, you know, and uh, he's desperate. He is a desperate man trying to save the fledgling American Revolution. And I love that in Hamilton, that the first thing you hear from Washington is it's bad. This isn't good at all. Yeah, I'm the venerated veteran from Virginia. But, you know, we could all die here in New York City as the British invade. And I'm afraid to say that this has been my role for the last four years, is to say that everything you know and love could be coming to a horrible end. And, you know, if you think things are bad now, imagine America where Donald Trump believes that he is the sole arbiter of what happens to you and your life. And he is such an incredible, insane, narcissistic personality, uh, certainly according to his niece, that he's capable of doing anything. And I believe that. I mean, I, I've, I've spent my entire life going after dictators, potentates, terrorists, and threats to America. And I clearly see that no one held a candle up to the damage that has been done by Donald Trump and his, and his psychopath. Malcolm Nance, I'm going to give you a quick prescription when you need something good. Listen to the Mozart post-horn serenade, and that will brighten your life temporarily, temporarily, <laughs> but it'll do it. It's a great piece, six movements. It's a wonderful piece. He wrote it when he was a teenager, and I hope all the listeners listen to it as well. It's kind of underrated, the post-horn serenade by Mozart. Writing it down. Even as we speak, I'm going to listen to it and brighten my day up at the end. What, what are you? What are you working on right now? New book? I mean, new new projects? Tell us what can we look forward to, Malcolm Nance. Right now, I'm working on my. I've I've been asked to produce my memoir about my you know near three decades decades in U.S. intelligence and now in media, and it's uh, it's got an interesting title. It's called Thinker, Sailor, Black Man, Spy. <laughs> this is like you, you had the, the Black Spies Matter, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We did that for a spy museum event, hashtag Black Spies Matter. And uh, because, <laughs> you know, we face obstacles also. But this will be my memoir of, of, of all of my years starting out as uh, interesting, true story, uh, the first you know, I'm a cryptologist. I started off as a cryptologic linguist. And the first decrypt of a of what I thought was a foreign communication was actually a Yiddish newspaper that was printed in Hebrew. And I took it to the Philadelphia uh, Free Library and I asked for a Hebrew alphabet book. And the, the librarian looked at me like I was from Mars and gave me the book, though. And I actually started trying to translate or decrypt the Yiddish, and I learned a very valuable lesson. Everything that we decrypt or codes that we break from foreign countries come out in another language. <laughs> so it didn't come out into English for me. Uh, <laughs> it came out into Yiddish. And it was my first exposure to understanding that Yiddish was actually a German and Hebrew 
based language. Didn't know that. I thought I was reading Hebrew. It's a fusion. Fusion, if there ever was. It is. I, I'd have to get Colin Powell to help me translate. He's fluent. Wow, I did not know that, and I didn't know you had ex- uh, exposure to Yiddish as well. Oh, well, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Philadelphia, and, uh, you know, but it again, it stoked my interest in, in other people, other cultures. I wanted to know what the tent was for, right? Uh, you know, and why do you wear a kippah or you know, why, you know, did my friend David and his brother wear hair locks? And why on Saturday night you need someone to, or Friday night, you need someone to turn the light switches off for you? All of these things were fascinating to me and led me right into the, the, the career that I had. And I'm so grateful that, you know, I had exposure to, you know, from Irish Catholics to Orthodox Jews to, you know, Pakistani Muslims, uh, you know, living in, in the great city of Philadelphia. And that I literally took everything I learned in, 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 in my childhood out into the field with me and brought me home today. Speaking about being grateful, Malcolm Nance, I couldn't be more grateful to you for coming on. It's a joy to have you, and I wish I could keep you forever. <laughs> well, there's always next year. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Alchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The producer of digital content is Brian West. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lalchuk. See you next time.